Hey teachers, I hope that I piqued your interest and helped to answer some questions regarding what curiosity is and uh, that you're ready to go further down the rabbit hole on this theme. And if things pan out like I plan, you'll come out the other side with some practical goals for cultivating curiosity with your students. In some cases, I think it works to have one overarching approach to a unit or theme for students. But as I've prefaced a lot, each student is unique and might rely more on a specific type of curiosity. In some limited cases, students struggle with the autonomy that I usually try to cultivate in classes. Um, So that's also something to take into consideration. At my best guess, about 10% of students do much better in a very structured, teacher-driven curriculum, um, or in other words, uh, they do better with institutionalized learning. I have a student that comes to mind who has a great deal of skill for the arts, but really can't make decisions for themselves. They get too lost too easily, and uh, providing this student with a strict instruction list uh, leads to better results. But even here, I would urge us to question if we should be more focused on what appear to be better results rather than the journey and actual learning taking place. I have students who have more interpersonal curiosity and do much better working in groups and then vice versa. Um, Some that struggle at isolated desks in rows where they can't talk to those around them. And I have other students who are more motivated by visual stimulation, such as exciting videos due to their perceptual curiosity. Some students need to get up and move around and make a mess of things while taking lots of chances because of their sensory curiosity. My goal with this part of the curiosity episode uh, or theme is to go a little deeper and get a little more specific and then try to frame it Uh, in a bit of within these, within the first three steps of the creative process, which are largely about the ideation and incubation periods of the process overall, um, which fits with curiosity really well. And something important that I forgot to call out even in the first part is just how much I've gained in identifying the specifics of, uh, of curiosity uh, from the book Wild Curiosity. So um, it's by Eric Schonstrom. Um, again, it's called Wild Curiosity. About 50% of the research I've been using here came from this book uh, by Eric Schonstrom, who's a veteran teacher and professor. The full title is Wild Curiosity, How to Unleash Creativity and Encourage Lifelong Wondering. Um, there's a lot in there. Like I said, 50% of my understanding of curiosity, I would say, stems from this book, although it included a lot of things that I had already found in my own searching and my own experiences. In a lot of ways, it's the book that that I would like to to write one day that focuses more on creativity rather than just being curiosity, but we would share a lot of the same chapters. And let me also preface something about a lot of the research in neuroscience on this subject. I know I've mentioned this, but it's a lot to take in, and it's probably too much in a lot of cases. There's so much nuance and details involved in how the brain works, and so many factors come into play. It's pretty much impossible to identify each factor as it's in action and then try to apply it to a classroom setting with 25 students. Um, And also oversimplifying can be really dangerous. And again, on top of it all, every single student is unique 
So it might not work in a, in a group setting. What I hope you get out of this is a big picture view of some important takeaways that you can be more purposeful with. I'm also currently working on a curiosity infographic to help with that just because I've realized um, really through thinking about this podcast how, how really complex it is. Uh, and as Shonstrom says in his book, neuroscience can help teachers become better. So can evolutionary biology. So can getting eight hours of sleep and eating more kale couldn't hurt. However, by looking at the nature of our learning, of how our lives are lived alongside the books we read and the people who mentor us within a changing world, we can start to grasp how learning functions, how curiosity is not a product of learning, but something that inspires it. Curiosity, it seems, and it really is a matter of fact based on the science and observations of educational leaders, curiosity is the soil that allows authentic learning to result from our experiences. Curiosity being the perfect blend of not knowing something, the wonder that results, and then possibly the ambiguity of a situation, engaging the novel, uh, the excitement, but also being mindful and calm when it applies to our world, ourselves, and others. This is when our brain lights up. And that's a lot of factors to try to recreate in an educational setting. Science has provided a great deal of evidence that suggests this. When we actually and deeply learn something, those are the elements that are there. I think being outside is so tied to this because of how Mother Nature speaks to our senses and provides calm, bringing about a relaxed but also an attentive focus that includes a great deal of affection and appreciation um, but also energy from the, the, the elements, the wind on our skin, the sounds of birds, the sun, the textures, the visual stimulation, and et cetera, that the outdoors provides. Uh, a lot of these elements induce curiosity. And that's because it's tied to our development and where, our, where humans were and what they were experiencing and what they needed when the brain was evolving. And here's another kicker. Experiments of the impacts of curiosity on the brain not only show greater authentic learning of specific materials, but also revealed an enhanced learning of incidental material that's on the peripheral. Um, this is the type of learning that we remember, absorb, and want to do something with, the type that leads to creativity. So not only does curiosity help us uh, focus and learn what is being presented, but it also enhances our ability to absorb the things on peripheral. So from everything we've discussed in this podcast, there are three extremely important things needed in the recipe for learning, which relate strongly to the elements of early modern hominid learning and brain evolution. And they are three things often missing from our traditional education system. Uh, supply cabinet, like such as the first one being time and space, allowing for the quest or journey of learning to take place. Learning is not a race. And unfortunately, a lot of institutional learning has become a race. The second is a decent and well-placed dose of the self, the autonomy that I speak to over and over and over. We need curiosity comes from our own connections and by allowing ourselves to connect to our world as we want, as we see it, not the world that somebody else sees or is projecting on you. The third um, is enjoyment, to have fun, to like what you're doing. Um, I bring it up again and again, affection as... Uh, Piaget speaks to. It's just the fact that learning is experiential and thought must produce action, one of my favorite quotes to say. 
we have to be doing things, going places, immersing ourselves, bringing our lives into the process and involving others, our relationships and connection to the world in order for authentic learning to take place. This takes time, but in it's likely hunter-gatherers had more time for leisure just exploring the forest, having time to allow ideas to grow naturally. This relates very much to the incubation period of creativity, which is a topic for a future episode, when ideas marinate in our heads and pop out when, they're, when they are ready. Um, ever have a dream that includes a solution to a problem you've been working out or get an idea in the shower or when you're driving your car? Basically, when we're not focusing our conscious brains too hard, when the conscious mind is calm or meditative, the period just before we fall asleep or when we are driving produces that state of, of mind similar to meditation, ideas just pop out of our subconscious. That's largely a result of incubation and it takes time. Learning takes time. Ideas take time to marinate and grow. Social media and the internet can be a powerful source of influence in, in good ways, but in our breakneck, fast-paced education that races to the testing finish line on top of the hectic, multifaceted digital world we live in and all of the demands that come along with that, how do we access the necessary dose of time and also self to manifest the type of reverie we need in order to be curious. Before I move into a conversation more focused on practicality and some things I do to cultivate curiosity, um, let me first add another level of evidence to the learning to the learning must be experienced concept. And if you can recall in part one, I spoke to learning regarding the hippocampus and its role in experiencing novel situations, how it controls our dopamine production, which is vital to learning and our brain's reward systems. And then how people who suffered from depression can have a d damaged hippocampus, which limits the response of excitement to new things. So when we are navigating somewhere, um, so here's, here's an example. So when we're navigating somewhere, and not necessarily with GPS systems that we use every day now, but on our own, having to remember specific landmarks to turn at, our hippocampus is activated. And it turns out that the hippocampus doesn't only help us find our way home, but it also is fundamental to building meaning out of experience. Again, as I stated numerous times in part one, and we'll continue to reference here in part two, because it speaks directly to learning when our brain was evolving, imagine an early hominid experience, experiencing navigation uh, and avoiding danger as they cross the savannas of Africa. Our hippocampus has hardwired uh, was was hardwiring events and landmarks in the brain. In other words, it was helping us to learn. As we continued to evolve, the hippocampus did the same regarding other types of events, especially as it related to relationships with other humans. As we became more complex social animals, it became an obvious evolutionary advantage to associate learning with relationships and connect these experiences with meaning. And a lot of this is thanks to the hippocampus. Put simply, we learned by gathering experiences with people and our world as it related to our lives. And again, when people suffer damage to their hippocampus, they develop difficulty processing not only excitement over new information, but also processing relationships. Um, learning is a multifaceted experience, but the hippocampus seems to be uh, central and, and how that learning takes place and how it's impacted, imprinted into the brain. 
And on a, a subnote slash added word of caution, it seems, it also seems, and we we largely have the internet to thank for this, uh, this realization, when we become overwhelmed with information, like think surfing Wikipedia for hours, or in my case, uh, Wikipedia, where I just kind of start clicking from one thing to the next thing really quickly, um, the volume and quantity of information that's hitting our brain at once in a very focused manner actually dampens our dopamine receptors. Um, so think think like a, like a drug addict um, who gets used to one drug and might end up needing a more powerful drug to produce a high after too much repeated exposure in a short period of time. The result can be similar. With the internet, as new information no longer gives us, uh, so the the result can be similar with with the internet, um, because no new information will no longer give us that same spark of pleasure, which is a big part of resulting in being uh, curious. This was actually studied in response to more and more people learning in the digital age, which lacks the experiential power associated with hippocampus activation. So when they study people who are learning on the internet or through a digital platform. Um, this is associated with less hippocampus activation. I'm now, um, so now I'm thinking about uh, the insane amount of information that students get during a typical day at school with their eight to nine periods smashed into seven to eight hours. And even, uh, even when we like the information, um, because I choose to click on that, I chose to click on that like Wikipedia link, we still experience information overdose. The sweet spot with curiosity is calm, attention. So kind of like balance between excitement and rest. Too much and we lose it in all the noise. Let me make clear that I'm not trying to make an argument against digital learning experiences. I have a lot of nuanced opinions on that subject and don't view the digital platform in the big picture as good or bad. I think in a lot of cases it's extremely helpful and I am a proponent in a lot of regards to to using um the digital revolution to our advantage. But when we are looking for ways to cultivate curiosity, we must must keep these realities in the back of our minds. Something I state with significance in my TED talk and did uh, near the beginning of part one is that, again, affection is required for learning. And thanks to Piaget, uh, the Swiss psychologist, child psychologist, for making that more well-known and also fairly accepted. And even though it is fairly accepted, it doesn't seem to be used enough. We must like what we are doing. And there are many ways to cultivate that affection that also uh, that also form other important connections to the bigger creative process, uh, promoting curiosity along the way. And obviously, as I've said, a large dose of self is a big part of that recipe. The problem with many of the solutions to creating experiential self-directed learning is that it appears to be chaotic. Think back to uh, the freedom, exploring, play, risk, natural world stuff I mentioned a bit ago or in part one, um, the early hominid experiences. This scares a lot of people and makes it harder to observe or quantify. But make no mistake, um, the main motivators to quantify and observe uh, teaching and learning is rooted in assessing teachers rather than student learning. We think we need to hold everyone accountable, which in a lot of cases is true. Um, I just find that accountability ends up rearing its head in all the wrong places and never the right places. 
it's just not going to work in the uh, in the ways that we are trying to approach it. Again, going back to the concept of creativity being teachable or something that just spontaneously manifests, the truth is that there is always a cause and effect. Some are easier to see than others, and our traditional system has tried way too hard to make the cause and effect really easy to see and in a super controlled setting so they can see it easily. And the problem is that this goes against the very nature of learning and cultivating the elements of curiosity in the creative process, which happens to be chaotic and messy at times, um, and also w- inherently results in a lot of lost time, where students are just kind of exploring, trying things, and failing over and over again. But we should value those parts. Um, I just want to preface that in a lot of this work I do, I do often have fewer results produced from students, but I think that the gains are far more obvious. And you see them a lot later, like years possibly, two to three years. Maybe a student is a freshman and by their senior year, you start to see the gains of of, uh, this type of learning. Uh, Curiosity and creativity don't do well with deadlines, grades, and institutional expectations. Another issue is that we have new ingrained cultural expectations about what learning is supposed to be, like practicing their ABCs, learning how to count the primary colors, which by the way, you've probably been taught the wrong primary colors. The real primary colors that should be taught are yellow, cyan, and magenta. Um, There happens to be a really great video on YouTube if you are interested in that. Uh, The YouTube video is by Echo Gillette, uh, and it's called This Is Not blue, a lesson in color theory, which is largely based on science, the spectrum of light, technology, and painting, and also goes into some neuroscience, like for instance, why the color purple doesn't exist. It's totally a construct of the human brain. Um, But you'll have to check that out for learn more about that subject. A lot of our current conventions about things don't actually hold up with science and or nature. Consider this excerpt from the book Wild Curiosity, again, which was highly influential in my understanding. It calls to mind the story I shared earlier about my son finding a bug in the forest. I shared this in part one. Um, So picture a little kid somewhere between two and five years old, my pretty much my son's, both my children's age, alone, and they're alone in the woods. Um, I actually just went into the woods. Uh, The forest is a great place to go during uh, the COVID-19 quarantine. And I, I really tried hard to just let my son wander and I followed his lead. And I uh, tried very hard, even when he looked like he was in somewhat of a dangerous situation, to let him get out of it himself. But so this part of the book says, so you're, you're watching a, a child walk through the woods. You don't talk to her. You just watch what she does and follow her movements. She may get fuzzy and complain, but you don't try to entertain her. You don't alleviate her boredom. You let her wander. She totters about in that adorable, simian, bow-legged walk of toddlers, gesturing and asking questions. Or maybe she ignores you completely, intent in her little world. Given enough time, she'll begin to explore on her own. Not explore in the iconic sense, but exploring nonetheless, touching leaves, picking up rocks, balancing on logs, and listening to the scurrying in the undergrowth and the birds overhead. Every moment, sound, texture, and bit of light is collected through her senses, sometimes cognitively, sometimes by default. What she is experiencing is sensory curiosity, a whole body exploration of the physical world. 
And again, the science shows that these are very powerful experiences that allow for great learning to take place. I've mentioned before, but my son goes to an outdoor learning school, which has been canceled. I'm really sad that he likely won't get to experience this during the summer months. Um, when it's nice out, he only got it when it was cold out for the most part. Um, but he loved it. And, and I think that it helps us learn. And when he was wandering through the forest recently, of course, like every good kid, he picked up a stick and then found a bigger stick and was really looking for the perfect stick to find. And he found what he considered the perfect stick and he was going around whacking things down. Um, he came to this certain uh, type of dry uh, brush from from last year uh, where this, the the plants had died and they had these really nice like thin white sticks that fell down really easily. So he's knocking them down. And then um, he picked one up and looked inside of it and he started seeing uh, the insides were this really interesting foam and he started playing with it. And I just thought about that um, uh, part in the Wild Curiosity book and, and how it leads to those learning experiences. And again, I know I'm repeating myself. Uh, the very first thing we need to do in order to cultivate curiosity and therefore learning is to get out of the way or at least get out of the driver's seat. This also means that we need to bring students into the curriculum creation process, not only as participants, but as leaders. This is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little bit more specific soon. This will help students understand their own learning better, promoting metacognition, and over time they will be able to build their own learning plans. Nearly every teacher ever will tell you that student-centered learning is super important, but few have actually followed that carrot to its logical source. If you have 20 to 30, even 15 students in a room, it's impossible to write an individual learning plan for every student on a maybe weekly, uh, monthly cor uh, course, which is what student-centered learning suggests. But it's not impossible if students are the ones writing it, then as a result, initiating their own learning. The only solution is in a class of 20 to 30 students, if you want student-centered learning, is obviously for the students to have a great deal of leadership in that process. And then the teacher is responding to and supporting each student's unique needs, supported by the student's understanding of themselves, their own skills and strengths, their challenges and weaknesses, which, by the way, they know a lot better than I do, especially in the beginning. It takes me years to truly understand a student on a level uh, to be able to understand their skills, strengths, challenges, and weaknesses, and their nuance of how they act and what works best for them. And then they graduate and go on to college, and I don't work with them anymore. Um, this is a great time to plug field trips as well, by the way. Um, I try to do two each semester with each of my classes. Um, do do they take a lot of time to plan and can they be very scary? Absolutely. But they lead to some of the most authentic and far-reaching learning experiences that I, I can provide students. And I also try to get my classroom outside to work as much as possible, draw outside or spray paint outside. Um, one of my favorite field trips is called the Urban Safari, which is a uh, an advanced photo trip. So photo two and photo three. So um, this might be the second time I've had these kids in a, in a photo class. And we get on a bus and we drive to different parts of the city and we just get out and the students are able to kind of wander uh, and explore and take pictures 
Um, a lot of times the kids going for like the second time will have a really good plan. We ask them the plan. They'll bring other students along to pose as models for certain things. Um, we go to places like Montrose Beach, which if you're outside of Chicago listening to this, um, is a, a beach along the lake that has a lot of different opportunities, such as it has a dock with lots of sailboats in it. It has what I call a cement beach, which is basically a lot of concrete with some cool layers leading to the waters on one side. There's a bird sanctuary that you can walk through, which has a lot of forest elements. Um, there's a pier, a dock that you can walk pretty far out with um, kind of like an old school lighthouse uh, there. Um, and it has a regular beach. And then there's some uh, buildings as well that offer some recreational uh, or in more industrial opportunities to take some pictures. Um, and it just provides so many different opportunities to explore and go in different directions. And the students are kind of contained in a space and have that sense of freedom and make up their own minds on what they're going to do and then bring that work back. And I can tell you it's, uh, this, when I'm having these conversations with students walking around and I'm saying like, you know, talking about, um, exposures and shutters and aperture and things like that and talking about uh, focal distance and and lighting and composition all of that is being learned at an at a far more efficient rate than when I talk about it in the classroom I wish that I could take every kid on this trip day one uh, unfortunately weather doesn't always allow for that and just teach all the fundamentals in this experience because I can tell you they will learn it and, and obtain it and absorb it a lot easier. Um, there is this guy who goes by the name Teacher Tom. Uh, maybe you're familiar with him, who also has a podcast and a blog. And he works with young children, and he speaks to the power of self-directed learning in his work, even with five-year-olds. And, and he says, if you let them, they will create a wonderful curriculum for themselves. But again, we have to be willing to get out of the way. Um, during this time at home for myself, because of the social distancing, I've been working with my kids more purposefully and at a greater length. And I have been amazed by how much my older son, who's four, directs moments of deep learning, like wanting to count something in a book we are reading. And I'm like, okay, let's spend some time working on numbers or later trying to figure out how to spell uh, Moana's name because he's so obsessed with Moana. Uh, and that movie and all the songs in it right now. Um, I'm going to seriously experience Death by Moana. Uh, then we'll spell all the characters' names and spend the next 30 minutes writing them. He completely wrote um, the main characters' names uh, in a workbook all by himself because he was interested in, in, in that. And he has previously not shown a lot of ability to read and write. Um, unfortunately, this ability has been schooled out of most of the students especially by the time they're in high school when I get to work with them and more effort needs to be directed towards it to be successful as a result. And also, by the way, when I tried to force my son to learn sight words um, previously, which I did last summer, and maybe it was a little soon, he's just so interested in, in reading. I thought it was a good opportunity. It totally backfired and he not only fought me on it, but ended up becoming disinterested for quite some time. And now um, he's showing interest in it on his own because he wants to be able to write the names and uh, of people that he's interested in. Um, and make a note about having subjects, concepts, processes within proximity, but without necessarily shoving it, shoving it down their throats. I hate to use this word, but I have uh, often tricked students into thinking 
things were their own ideas, and the results are usually much stronger than if I obviously dictated the focus. And also, let me make it clear that I'm not saying students should have total freedom. Uh, in fact, I think this is where some more progressive programs fail by going too far in one direction and, and not recognizing that different stimuli are best at different parts of the creative process. Take domain skills, for instance. If a student wants to learn different shading techniques to realize their goals of making a pencil portrait drawing, a more teacher-centered and structured approach might work better at that time. But I also can't tell you how many times I've given a marvelous tutorial on something like watercolors only for exactly zero students to retain what I had just spent 30 minutes showing them and, and countless hours preparing. Um, by the way, there's a ton of videos on YouTube too that that do that can show that. And sometimes allowing students to find their own videos works better. Um, I, I find when students search for their own tutorials online and follow along with that video, it sticks a lot quicker in their heads. Uh, and that my guidance after that also results in quicker and more obvious gains when they're asking questions. So I'm responding to them. Again, if they're asking me a question, it means they're approaching it with a curious mind. If I'm shoving something down their throats, they're not curious necessarily. Um, you might be able to make them curious and then give them a tutorial. But again, I just think that um, allowing them to find those those resources on their own when they're all out there anyway is... Uh, can be helpful in certain circumstances, not always. But we are talking about, right, the curiosity phase and really the first three steps of the creative process, which is to be influenced. Number one, influence. Uh, creation requires influence. And then to be two, making connections, which curiosity, the hippocampus, is a really big part of. And then taking the, that influence and all those different ideas and connecting them into the third stage of innovating, uh, it into an idea of their own. Um, and all of this are, again, these are about the really the ideation part uh, rather than the creation part. And one of the major issues with curriculum creation across the country, again, is that students are completely absent from that process when they should be front and center, coming back to something I said moments ago. So what are some things that we can do about the fact that students are not leading the curriculum, maybe even understanding how to, especially with older students, um, because I've already named a few things we can do when they are younger. In recent years, I've started focusing a good part of my time teaching with uh, students on how to do this and in to, to lead curriculum, to generate curriculum. In specific, I do a unit with students every uh, every semester, basically, with almost every class, very early on, that I call the Collaborative Curriculum Boot Camp. And this this is basically its own 45-minute podcast in the least to go over all of the elements of this. So I can't go into detail here. I'm also working on getting uh, that available in an online class format. I want to do a lot more online class formats, especially I was already wanting to do that, and especially with the current corona virus quarantine i think it's more appropriate and i often i might find myself to have more time although i spend a lot of the time i used to be teaching with my own kids um i've prevent i've presented about the collaborative creative uh, collaborative curriculum boot camp um at at conferences i've done it with professional development workshops with teachers as well and when i'm working with teachers like say in a professional development workshop and students are not available, which is 
one of the major issues. If students are trying are supposed to be a major part of it, what do you do? Um, I have them try as hard as they can to imagine a student and go from there. And again, I'm going to be creating an online uh, class on this, hopefully sooner than later, although I have a lot of things on my list to get to right now. But in a nutshell, the students work through a series of collaborative exercises that also teach them more about the creative process while giving them a sense of control over the curriculum. We do a lot of brainstorming, and I use this time to cultivate a culture of sharing dialogue more openly and respectively. So in a way, especially if I do this early on, it's a way of creating the culture in the class as well. So I'm trying to kill our, I hate that, kill two birds with one stone, multiple birds, but try to get a lot of things accomplished with one effort. We do something called, uh, for instance, we do something called mind mapping, which involves writing a central theme on the board and then students shout out words uh, that it makes them think of and it keeps going uh, with separate pathways connecting to different words. So um, if like, say say we do a, a topic, I mean, we would maybe do COVID-19 and people would say like virus and maybe they would bring up the cold because it's related to that. Um, they would talk about maybe SARS and other things, but also healthcare system would come to mind, maybe governments, political elements, you know, and, and as they're saying these words, we'd write them on the board, they would probably write quarantine. And then if you think of quarantine, they might go to talking about their own isolation and things that they were doing or sleep, you know, and so you could see like how you end up with something like uh, what I did with my kids walking in a forest, you know, say like forest comes to mind when I think of COVID-19. Even those don't seem to relate, they do. And it's really interesting when you trace that through the mind mapping process. And uh, we just keep going and the separate pathways connect to different words. Um, and we usually, we use this later on, so um, we document it. We also do a few trust and teamwork exercises. This is all done within the frame, and I, and I state it like this. You, a student uh, in high school, and you think, so you're a student, so let me back up. This is all done within the frame of saying that, like, you are a student in my class there in a high school, and you think something important needs to be solved, what are you going to do about it? Um, and in my cases, it's something regarding an art project that engages your specific school community. So that's the prompt at the beginning, essentially, to kind of lead the way through these different steps, although some of them come even before that. The problem, of course, is that students have built, have not built the domain skills needed to carry out the project yet because we do this early on. So we follow this with a series of smaller exercises meant to teach things like drawing skills. So um, you might have like students come up with a project around the theme of, of stress, anxiety, depression, or bullying, say if that's an issue at your school and students are struggling with it, and they come up with this great project idea um, concept, they might not have the ability to carry that out. So we would then go learn some domain skills. What I find is that also motivates them to learn the domain skills through these exercises a little bit more because they want to do the project that they just came up with. And in a lot of cases, it'll be different students coming up with a different project on their own. Um, in fact, so in drawing, uh, in my drawing-based class, like Art One Foundations class, the next project we do is an ec expressive abstract wall painting experience that opens students up and introduces various mediums to them. So the the whole the whole goal is that it's very experiential. So they just they're painting on a wall, they're having fun, it's novel, 
uh, students haven't painted on a wall since they were like in since they were toddlers probably and it's something very human to want to paint on a wall so they're they're having fun they're outside the classroom on this wall but I introduce all these different mediums to them so they learn like charcoal they'll use pencils they'll use pastels they'll use paint um, and they'll use all these different mediums and they're learning the mediums while kind of having fun just being expressive and mark making on a wall and that those skills then come into play later on when we come back to uh, the collaborative curriculum boot camp. Maybe I got a little bit ahead of myself for a minute because the first thing I always do with my students, this is the second day of class. The first day is always to go over the syllabus, share my philosophy on education, uh, give the students a questionnaire, you know, to get to understand them more, show that I care about them, that kind of stuff. Uh, the second day of class is a creative materials exploration contest. And uh, so what that is, uh, students are paired up into groups of three to four students, and each group is given the exact same amount of random supplies, things like paper cups, cardboard, straws, dead paintbrushes, um, pieces of foil, whatever I can find laying around or enough of in the garbage to give to each group an equal number of. On the board, I write a series of points for different things such as tallest, most aesthetically pleasing, use of fewest supplies, most creative use of supplies, and more. Um, I give different points for different things too, so it's not all equal. Uh, I have images of this on my Instagram um, and my website. Uh, so you can go to chriscore.com. Um, you can click on my Instagram from there, but you can also go to uh, my projects and things like that. I think I have some pictures of that. And I, though I do change these scores and prompts from time to time, finding that some things work better in dif different circumstances. Um, so essentially, I throw this all on the table. I give them these prompts. And then say, and this is the second day, and I just say, go. The students dive right in, right away, like grabbing these materials, trying to figure out how to win the most points because they want to win. I don't even give a prize, just, just like the... <laughs> The, this is where the competitive element really comes in, though I think like in most cases, competition doesn't really bode well, work well with the creative process. In this case, it does, largely because it's just kind of fun and awesome uh, to just play like this and experiment. Um, it gets the students used to excitement and effort on the second day. So one of the things that I love about it is that it teaches them that this is, this is, or it shows them that this is a place of doing. Um, and then very importantly, we follow up their activity when they finish making these, these things uh, with a critique in which I ask them a series of questions meant to probe their thinking and motivate self-reflection on the choices they made and why, what worked and what didn't. And in this dialogue, they actually gain a lot of insights to, um, and then what I like to do is sometimes repeat this process later on where they have a chance to kind of approach it with these new insights. Shifting back to the teacher workshops uh, and specifically on the collaborative boot camp, uh, curriculum boot camp, in a recent PD workshop experience with teachers, a teacher asked a question that ended up creating a, a phrase that I kind of love now, and I call it, uh, that I, I guess I would now call an effect that we were discussing, and I call it now the donut effect, and, and it actually leads us to a great learning opportunity on this whole idea of bringing students into leadership roles as creating the curriculum. So the teacher question was during that boot camp, and they asked about students being 
well, middle schoolers and saying something silly or even disrespectful because that's what middle schoolers might do. This teacher group was working on a health-focused project concept, and they thought that a student might blurt out something harmful regarding overweight people. My My response was to preface that we must be willing to meet all students where they are, that every student should have a place right at the table um, and as leaders, if if all of you think that, a, and I said, if all of you teachers think that a 11, an 11 year old boy will make a fat joke per se, then that's where they probably are. If you all think that's going to happen. And this means it's an opportunity to meet that student or those students where they are. This is, this is who they are. This is where they're at in their development at this time and place. And ignoring it would do them a disservice and everybody else around them because then they don't learn why it's disrespectful or how it's disrespectful. And maybe it's an opportunity to provide a life lesson in empathy and socio-emotional health for everybody in the classroom. Um, I shared a specific story about a student that I had once, and this is where I get to the donut effect. Um, so this one time when I was doing the collaborative boot camp with a bunch of middle schoolers, actually, in a summer program at Northwestern, one student thought it would be funny during the mind mapping to yell out the word donut for no particular reason, just as a joke. Um, I think they even said hashtag donut to be specific. They thought it was so funny <laughs> and, uh, they were laughing and I wrote it on the board and they were kind of shocked that I wrote it on the board because that's what they said. Obviously, there are some words I wouldn't write on the board, but this is what they said, so I wrote it on the board. That's what you do in mind mapping. Anyway, the project uh, one student group settled on was focused on the environment, and one student in that group used the donut idea in their project. They actually ended up making a stencil based on the Dunkin' Donuts logo slash phrase that had the words, America runs on oil under it. Um, And they came up with this idea because of that student's joke uh, with the donut. So um, the joke ended up inspiring another student. I say this, and this is why I call it the donut effect. Be open to where students actually are in their lives and to what they are interested in exploring and what they say. Ask yourself, what's really a priority for students to learn here? What I think is important or what they think is important and based on where their lives are. We have to meet them where they are to get anywhere. Students don't need to know all the exact same stuff. In fact, this is dangerous to the creative process and societal process progress as well. We have computers and phones that hold all the information in the world, usually accessible in one's pockets. And this is also why socio-emotional learning is more important than memorizing. And I dream of the day when those two switch in prioritization in schools. Um, another obvious technique uh, in in all this work or in inducing curiosity is inquiry. Some might call it Socratic reasoning. Just starting with a question, maybe with little kids, what is the fastest dinosaur? To explain the answer, to fully understand it, you would likely need to consider a variety of subjects, including calculations on how fast an animal could run based on its proportions and skeletal structure. You would probably compare it to animals today, consider the geology and environment of both animals' time periods. Might You might want to draw the animal. At a simplistic level, this is thematic learning. Or, or considering the nature of self as inspiration for a self-portrait project, um, this is another suggestion. You, I always say you never truly understand something until you draw it. 
And so incorporating the idea of exploring self more intimately as part of a self-portrait project in a, in a classroom. Um, I might provide resources and then ask students to search on their own and then report back to the class on the subject. Um, maybe different elements of self, like what makes self. You know, uh, do a mind mapping of, of what makes you you. Use the internet. Uh, obviously, there are so many process videos out there on how to draw, on how to shade, how to do self-portraits. You don't have to remake the wheel. I think we spend too much time building the resources that have, are already there. Use that time to do more important things like individualized assessments or like truly trying to understand each individual and responding to each student. Connect it to the students' lives. Again, can't say this enough. I had a student make a family tree in response to a masks project prompt once. I never would have made that connection on my own. And if a student would rather do something else, ask them what and why. Have them write a proposal and then do it. I assure you it's better than having them be less than half engaged and not connected. Thematic learning, right? Use one subject to connect to a variety of learning goals. Um, also, another example uh, when I did a masks project is having a student, having two students come to me one day and say, um, "I want to make a uh, life-size Barbie in a box, and how do I do that?" And then figuring out how to solve that problem. You know, my prompt was like working with masks and they want to make a life-size Barbie. I didn't expect that to happen. And then it ended up being one of the best projects I've ever had uh, students in an intro class create. I didn't intend for that. One of the projects I'm most proud of in my teaching career came from students, 100% from students, without any front-end effort on my part at all. Um, I happened to walk in when a few female students in the classroom, when a few female students were having a really intense conversation about the impacts of gender on their lives. One was really upset about getting in trouble for a dress code violation and was expressing their frustration on how it unfairly singled out girls. And then I just was walking by and I joined the conversation and it ended up growing. I eventually asked them what they were going to do in response to it since it seemed so important to them. And the gender project was born that day. Uh, an unofficial club was formed. More students joined the cause. And it ended up becoming a school-wide three-week project with our own TED Talk type style presentations, tons of artwork, videos. And students ended up creating curriculum for every single subject in the school, which they shared with the, the whole staff. And teachers had the option of using it or not. I, the best part is that it was 100% extracurricular. Um, none of the, like very few of these students were actually in my one of my classes. We did this before and after school and students worked harder than they have ever, than I have ever had any student work and they never received a grade on it. They just really cared about the content and they created it and they wanted to see it come to fruition. There's, a, um, there's some things on my website about it as well in the, in the projects uh, page. So here are some other suggestions, and some might be obvious. The seeking of novel situations gives students the opportunity to experience something new that can be connected with prior learning in their lives. That's key. Um, novel, novel experiences is, is an important part of, of developing curiosity. The key here, though, is experience. 
Science tells us that this is what makes things stay in our long-term memory. Most classroom experiences struggle with this, largely because risk and thrill are important characteristics of a true novel experience, and those things can be scary. But the reaction is that it feels creative risks as well. Keep in mind that fear can obstruct learning because we are far less creative when experiencing bad stresses. Um, I always use the term bad stress because I think there's some stress that is helpful. Um, and actually pushes us in a good way. It's been my observation that a lot of students live in constant fear of grades. Under specific conditions, risk and thrill enhance learning based on the ways our brains were built. When we are excited about the risk and, and nervous and like the way we feel before a big game, right? Simply put, learning is most impactful when it's dynamic. Fun is a word I wish every teacher had at the top of their priorities list. I think it should be at the top of a school uh, mission as well. So here's an here's an example uh, of that in in the classroom context. I have a few spray painting units for different classes, such as Art One and Graphic Design. Um, so as you can imagine, spray painting is often a mess and a chore to keep up with. But my gosh, do students love it and they dive in. You will rarely see a more active group of students than when you put a can of spray paint in their hands. And they will work hard to master certain aspects of the techniques, uh, technique process in order to realize their final project goals. Uh, in fact, all of them will. In 10 years, I have never had a, a student work, not work hard at this project. Even the, students who, uh, the student who does nothing else the entire year will finish this project start to finish. And why is that? because spray painting is super novel to them. Not only that, it has a rebellious aspect to it, so it hits the thrill seeker in them a little bit, the risk element. It's very different on a perceptual level in that it looks, feels, smells different in powerful ways, and it's just plain fun to use. Um, they also love the surprise of drawing and then cutting a stencil that they think is going poorly. The students always think that they're they're making this stencil poorly and that it's not going to look work out and i assure them that it will work out and then when the first student finally finishes and sprays the stencil for the first time and the experience of pleasant shock as it overcomes their expectations um, you'll see like the rest of the class start digging in working even harder when they see that first student finish and they're like wow, that looks a lot better than I was expecting it to. Maybe mine will look that way too. And everyone experiences that same surprise when they when they reveal their stencil for the first time. Spray paint is dynamic and every student is curious about it. That curiosity fuels a drive throughout the unit. It's pretty simple. Here's another suggestion. Allow students to switch gears based on where their leaps of curiosity take them, but be careful about this. I mentioned a student in part one who makes too many leaps on an almost daily basis. In general, though, I have found that when a student comes to me with an idea they just had regarding a unit, and even though this idea might shy quite far away from my intentions, allowing the student to cultivate a plan and then carry out their idea is far more beneficial than making them do what I assigned, as long as they commit to it and take responsibility for that project. Real learning takes time and doesn't readily make itself available to memorization tests. Let them play and find their own paths. Again, this doesn't work for all students, but it seems to for the vast majority of them. Going back to that student who leaps around from idea to idea, starts a bunch of projects and never finishes any. Um, 
I have made an added effort to help enhance the student's focus because that uh, help them through like help them through thoughtful discussions of what they're thinking and feeling and how we might solve it. Um, think back about uh, to that 10 minute rule in the first part and having thoughtful reflection through a curious mind. I have tried uh, with the student being tougher and making them uh, see something through, uh, just like forcing them to see something through, uh, both uh, of which have had some positive results. So the 10 minute rule and then being tougher have both had positive results. But I also tried meeting the student where they were. Uh, okay, so, so like saying like, you keep making all these different projects or coming up with these different ideas, then you never see it through. Why don't you make a book full of pages of smaller works of art in different mediums and of the different subjects that you keep doing and even include some writing in it? What if you write about your impulses and reflect on your curious energy for the world, creating somewhat of an idea diary or journal of your creative journey? Unfortunately, uh, when I came up with this idea, this was a recent idea and we ended up in a quarantine a few days later. But I'm hoping it still comes to fruition. Just saying like, okay, so you're just making all this stuff and it's all over the place. It's kind of like sketchbook like, why don't we make a book? and write in it and learn about your process. It also turns out that curiosity is ignited by something we can call associated ambiguity. Associated ambiguity. This speaks to the role of self, of having affection for the things we learn and the experiential aspects of it all. So researchers have found that we become more drawn towards something that has a certain level of ambiguity. Think back to some of the novel and mysterious aspects of spray paint for students but only as long as we can make associations with the entity. And I think like with spray paint, they think like, I'm a teenager, I'm rebellious, I'm supposed to use spray paint or like it. Um, basically, if someone tells me about a book with a main character that sounds like me, like everything about this character is me, but then they leave out important information about the book, my curiosity is likely to spike and I will seek out more information to close that knowledge gap ASAP and with a great deal of enthusiasm. Normally, knowing less leads to liking less, but if we can make an important connection, it might intensify our curiosity. How can we do this with students? Well, the obvious thing to do is make personal connections. One thing we can do is have the student uh, fill out a questionnaire before a project that helps us find specific references or concepts that might appeal to them or make the quest have something to do with their world or lives at home. So here's the theme. Now, how does that function in your life? Go figure it out. Be careful to avoid dis disappointment, though, because if it turns out that the book with myself as the main character has a bunch of things that I actually hate in it or that I don't find the story to be very good in the slightest, the disappointment actually hits harder in this case, and I'm more likely to quit on the book sooner and like just quit in general than if I didn't have that curiosity ignited by associated ambiguity in the first place. So consider why people are so connected to their religion. This is a, this is a really great example. Um, religion kind of exists really well in associated amb ambiguity. Think about the love of God that people have, and yet God remains unknowable. 
how people bring themselves into their idea of God as well. And the beauty is that they will never really find the answer. But also think about how church and, and religion is a lot about community and things that uh, familiar things that make them feel good about themselves, but still like a new experience and they're still on this journey. Uh, it's continual curiosity through associated ambiguity. Religion is a great example of it. Another important realization is that positive information seen early on leads to this type of presumed similarity and then subsequently liking, and that on the flip side, negative information seen early on negatively colors all subsequent revelations. They say you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? And that holds true. This makes a lot uh, of the advice that I received from other teachers when I was starting my career sound pretty awful. Um, do you know how many times I was told to start strict and stern with students? They would always say, you can always ease up later, but they will know who's boss. Nope, doesn't work that way. It's actually better to start by sharing a connection with students. I've already mentioned that I start off all my classes on day one by sharing uh, my empathy for their situation and my thoughts on the education system, like when I sit, talk about my philosophy on education, for the mo majority of students, I can do no wrong after I show that empathy. They're like, you mean you want to get rid of homework because it isn't as meaningful, uh, isn't a meaningful learning experience that kills our curiosity? Sweet. What meaningful experiences do you actually want me to do now? Um, I By talking about how I see education from their experience and how it hurts them in a lot of cases, um, I gain a lot of loyalty early on. And side note, I don't actually want to get rid of all homework. Uh, if you haven't, check out my episode on that subject um, to get more on that. So everything about my communication in those first days is about empathizing with students and providing real authentic experiences that get them moving, shaking, and collaborating in meaningful ways. Oh, so empathy, because I just brought empathy up. Um, if the number one and only goal of schools was to manifest empathy, I think we would be in a really great place. I mentioned fun as being another awesome one, too. But if, if empathy was our number one goal, I don't think I would be writing, talking much about changing things. Um, I'm thinking about how to frame this next part. Well, so here's an equation. Here, yeah, here's an equation. Curiosity plus imagination equals empathy, right? Curiosity plus imagination equals empathy. In my TED Talk, I share this thought and uh, evidence regarding just the concept uh, of imagination and empathy. Um, I say that imagination has been defined as the ability to think of things as possible, the source of a flexibility and originality in human thinking. It's also often said that empathy only extends as far as our sight. And, well, the imagination has the capacity to extend our perceptions indefinitely. Unfortunately, uh, surveys of American college students showed a substantial drop over the past 40 years in empathy and in imagining the perspectives of others. Imagination allows us to perceive and reflect on the situations of other people without actually experiencing it for ourselves, and it helps us to conceive of multiple realities at once. Imagination is instrumental in the action of empathizing. Curiosity is the motivation and inspiration to do so. Remember, curiosity is the soil and imagination is the light. Obviously, when talking about empathy, interpersonal curiosity factors in 
quite significantly, and in fact appears to cause the development of empathy and then compassion as the action of empathy. In his book, Empathy, Why It Matters and How to Get It, Roman Krisnarik, I never, I know, I have no idea how to say his name. I think he has a lot of talks, so I should know that. Um, he's a public philosopher who writes at great length about the power of human empathy. Uh, he goes into great detail about cognitive empathy in that book, uh, or perspective teaching taking, which involves making an imaginative leap and recognizing that other people have different tastes, experiences, and wor- world views than our own. Um, that's on page 10, actually, from his book, Empathy, uh, from 2014. He continues to provide evidence that empathy can be learned, that we can humanize our imagination. That's a quote. And there is overwhelming agreement among the experts that our personal empathy quota is not fixed. We can develop our empathetic potential throughout our own lives. It's easy to see how interpersonal curiosity, in other words, being curious about people, coupled with the imagination, can manufacture a great deal of empathy. In my experience, framing stimuli within the paradigm of curiosity allows us to hold multiple truths about the same concept at once. This is fundamental to imagination and then creativity in general. It allows us allows one to empathize with a greater array of people, though, as well, in unique situations, especially when those situations differ greatly from our own. This is wanting to understand why something is and then having the imagination to perceive other realities to, to fill that gap. Let me offer a personal anecdote. And a uh, quick warning, I'm going to reference things of a political nature. I know some people shy away from that. I personally think it's really important to talk about our politics, and I wish we could talk about it um, more fluently without so much, with more curiosity, actually. So um, after Trump won the election, I responded more like a blamer <laughs> rather than with a curious mind. Uh, again, the blamer, shamer coming back from um, uh, Dr. I.L. talking about the 10-minute rule and curiosity and helping change bad habits. I'm not happy about my behavior during that period of my life. Uh, I'm not. I mean, that was a really weird time. Anyhow, eventually I became more curious. And as that happened, my empathy actually grew in this case. Rather than blame, I wanted to understand, and more specifically, I wanted to understand what factors caused the specific effect. I needed to, I really needed to fill the gap. More specifically, I wanted to understand the Trump voter. So I started to consume media that took a nuanced approach to understanding that demographic. This eventually opened me up to conversations I wouldn't have been able to have prior, which extended my empathy even more and resulted in really meaningful conversations with people that I deeply disagreed with on certain things. Of course, we always find that we have more in common with others, even people who seem so profoundly different. I also found that I learned more about myself than I was expecting and a great deal about political science in general through the frame of other people who live real lives and think and feel much like I do. This doesn't mean I agreed with many of the people I had these conversations with, but I did change more minds by empathizing through a curious mind first. And I feel so much better about myself uh, and others as well, for the most part anyway. Um, I think we are 
more divided as a society for many reasons, but that not having enough curiosity and imagination or educational systems over the past 100 years, and therefore less empathy, is a big one. Since this episode is about curiosity and not imagination, I think it's important to point out that curiosity has been proven to enhance empathy even without imagination, and I'll dive more into how imagination is important to empathy in the Imagination episode podcast. Um, The fact remains that interpersonal curiosity opens us up to others and even motivates us to crave more information about people. In fact, my Trump analogy has some scientific and practice-based evidence behind it. And here's one example. Uh, And this came from uh, the Wild Curiosity book again. Zubin Sharma, the founder of Project Potential, He wrote an article documenting his experiences introducing a curiosity-based style of learning in rural India. Sharma wrote about the obstacles of living a curious life for other people uh, he was working with, such as intense social obligations, uh, inflexible mindsets, and a lack of ways in which people talked about curiosity to begin with. What Sharma found, though, is that over time, he saw improvements and that the rewards extended well beyond his expectations. Interpersonal conflict between previously antagonistic individuals decreased. He writes that, um, quote, two volunteers who had previously defined each other as enemies said they now considered each other great friends. The type of language, but even more importantly, the way we speak through a curious, curious lens and how that shifts paradigms allows people to access their empathy muscles more fluidly and see past biases, which result in a growth-focused mindset rather than a judgmental or protective one. Psychologist Todd Kajdan has written about this regarding positive psychology, and while trying to answer the question... Um, how can curiosity be used to improve our lives? Not surprising, he and his team discovered that people high in interpersonal curiosity created a feeling of closeness with those around them. His work strongly supports the idea that curiosity is crucial towards building quality relationships that last, but he went further to say that the state of being curious is part of having a positive affect in the first place. So that basically we have to be curious to be to have affection. And also it causes us to be open and maybe even more importantly, more adaptable to new or ambiguous concepts, places, people, and other stimuli. He wrote that this includes a tolerance of differences. Being curious about others, their customs, experiences, and mindsets reduces fear and frustration that lead to aggression. Think about how that could relate to fear and frustration regarding a math assignment or an English assignment or a science or history assignment. In my case of wanting to know more about Trump voters, my curiosity was motivated by an inherent need to close the knowledge gap that had formed in my brain. I couldn't make sense of things and I wanted deeply to do so. Curiosity doesn't just help us become more open to people and ideas. It fulfills us in an important way. And this in turn puts us in the position to learn more completely. It connects us to ourselves, others, and the information we absorb or deflect. The connections to social-emotional learning are obvious. 
Curiosity sets the framework for and acts as a guide for students to overcome struggles by being a powerful response to stress, anxiety, division, pressure, bad habits, frustration, you name it, that they feel on a daily basis, while also serving as the motivation to approach novel subjects with inquisitive care as a source of awe, mindfulness, and innovation. It allows us to connect to the world in meaningful ways. And of course, it has lasting and fundamental implications for the creative process which generates multifaceted personal and societal rewards that are far-reaching. Curiosity is the first phase of the creative process, though it stays with us throughout and has significant impacts on even the third and final phases, which involve critique, by putting us in the mindset to absorb the benefits of critique in crucial ways in the first place. If we enter the critique phase guarded, fearful, angry, or judgmental, it's far less likely to add value or growth. If you can hear my kids in the background, I apologize. Um, But, you know, that's the situation I'm in. Critique is, again, critique is far less likely to be successful without curiosity. When I have conversations with teachers about their practice and potentially make suggestions that could result in a significant shift in their practice, as a lot of the things I say do, and they are having this conversation in a place coming from a place of bias and protection for those practices or those biases, the conversation is likely to end less than positively and far less likely to lead to growth. Curiosity opens us up to ourselves, others, novel concepts, and allows others to change us in powerful ways. Um, I hate when people talk about relationships and saying like, that you're not supposed to be changed, you know, that that kind of uh, vocabulary or language. Relationships are about being changed by other people and choosing the type of people, being around the type of people that we want to change us, but also being open to people who are very different from us to see those sides to expand our abilities to understand ourselves from these different perspectives. And the first thing we have to do is create a curious culture in our education systems if we want change to happen. Otherwise, any efforts for growth are doomed from the get-go. Last analogy, and then I'm out. And nerd alert, because it involves Star Wars, which has already come up today with the Wikipedia reference. I posted on the Hey Teachers pod Facebook page a video about the process Disney is using to facilitate their new set of story arcs for books, comics, and probably TV and movies, not the... um, Force Awakens stuff, um, which I'm not a huge fan of for various reasons uh, that I actually use to talk about the creative process in in detail, but I'm not going to do that right now. Um, So anyway, now, this time, they're doing the process a little bit more correctly, or what I would say in in a better way to produce creative results. They brought in a ton of experts and previous Star Wars writers that have had huge influences on the Star Wars universe over the past 20 years, and they did it in an incubator-type style uh, creative workshop where they put all these people in a building (laughs) and then, like, in a room and said, figure it out. Uh, I thought, so I was thinking about it, uh, and again, I posted on my, my Hey Teachers Facebook page. I was thinking about all the egos that were entering that space. And all the preconceived notions coming in of what Star Wars should be. Again, these are people who have already written about Star Wars. And I was thinking about how each one of them had probably written a whole story arc before even showing up on day one. 
arcs that probably contrasted greatly with each other's. If those brilliant and creative minds do not enter that space with curiosity first and foremost as their motivation or as the number one lens for the process, all of it is doomed from the word go. So hey teachers, how will you be cultivating curiosity as a soul for learning in your culture? Thanks for listening.